I feel like a lot of people must do that, but it's sort of this like shameful secret. <laughs> mm, that's nice. CNF, this creative nonfiction podcast is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts in Nonfiction. The Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere on campus. Anywhere. Need a comma in there. Anywhere. While on-campus residency allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level. Go from hopeful to published in Goucher's MFA in creative nonfiction. Strike that creative. It's just nonfiction, best of my knowledge. Also, discover your story. Baypath University is the first and only university to offer a no-residency, fully accredited MFA focusing exclusively on creative nonfiction, attend full or part-time from anywhere in the world. In the Baypath MFA, you'll find small online classes and a dynamic and supportive community. You'll master techniques of good writing from acclaimed authors and editors, learn from publishing and teaching through professional internships and complete a master's thesis that will form the foundation for your memoir or collection of personal essays. Special elective courses include contemporary women's stories, travel and food writing, family histories, spiritual writing, and an optional week-long summer residency in Ireland with guest writers including Andre DeBuse III, Anne Hood, Mia Gallagher, and others. Start dates in late August and January. Find out more at baypath.edu slash MFA. Oh, yeah. All right, partner. You know what time it is. Feeling like getting into it, bro? Don't make me riff, bro. Don't make me do it, because I'll do it. This is on you. I hope you feel good. I hope you're happy. Recording this on the 4th of July, three days after my birthday, two days after Jose Canseco's birthday, Bash Brothers, this is CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast where I speak to badass writers, filmmakers, radio producers, and podcasters about the craft of telling true stories. We chart their path to where they are today and dig into how the hell they got the work done. Sounds simple. But man, can we unpack some baggage. Today's guest is the brilliant and enviably young Allie Robottom, author of Jello Girls, A Family History. Title sounds cute, but this gets into some shit, man. Strap on a safety harness for this ride. Boom, we'll get to her. Hey, you gotta do the thing. You gotta go subscribe to CNF where you get your podcasts. You can get your show notes at brendanomero.com. Hey, hey. And you can also sign up for my month newsletter where I share reading recommendations and podcast news on the first of the month. Once a month, no spam. As far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Keep the conversation going on Twitter, at CNFPod, and on Instagram, at CNFPod. Facebook, too. Wherever you jam, we'll bring the band. Consider leaving a nice review on iTunes. I got a couple more as birthday presents, and I could always use a few more. I'd love to hit 100. And we're 32 
ratings and reviews away. Nothing's going to change at 100. I'm probably not going to feel any different. I know that for a fact. It's like if you get a if you get a book deal and you've been striving for that and then you finish the book and you're like, what is this? What a, I don't feel any different. The fact is the process is the reward and that external validation means nothing. But 100 reviews, that, that sounds awesome. I would love to see it. But it just it's a badass number. I, I yeah. So if you have a moment, I sure as hell would love that as a B-Day present. Level 39. On an abstract level, this is pivoting a little bit, I always thought it was a good idea for any writer to be an editor at some point. I think when we're in the myopia of our own writing and we're trying to sway editors to buy our work and we don't hear from them for a long time and then we start getting all pissed, like, come on, like... How come they can't return a damn email or write something back that's a little more thoughtful? Then, then we're just going to pass on this. Or worse, they write nothing back at all and you just like, duh! I started a pseudo full-time job as the assistant opinion page editor at the Register Guard, Eugene's primary newspaper. I say pseudo part-time because I'm technically only supposed to be on the clock for 34 hours, but I definitely work more than 40 such is life such such is life that's just the way it is and people write in their letters or their guest viewpoints and then there's other columnists too and it's like a damn fire hose and frankly I'm like I don't have time for you maybe I'll get back to you in a week maybe sorry got to get tomorrow's page out got to be here got to be there it's the nature of the beast so the one thing I knew editors dealt with is really hitting home. I don't mean to lecture, but editors have 99 pressing things that need to be done yesterday. I don't know what else to say other than, I feel you, brah. Okay. Allie Robottom, where to begin? She's a boss. And her book, Jello Girls, is a family history, and she's part heir to the Jello fortune from the sale of the company decades ago. She writes about how Jell-O's marketers aim to put women in molds, and the book further explores the toxic patriarchy that existed and, of course, still exists to this day and probably, unfortunately, will exist into the indefinite future. And you thought this was about jiggly, colorful, sweet treats. Hmm. Allie's writing, for sure, is a sweet treat, and you should buckle the hell in because... Here she is for episode 159er. I think a fun place to start might just be to simply ask you how you got the writing bug as as a young as a you know a young person coming coming up and developing and I was just wondering like how did you take this on as probably a hobby or something for fun early on and then watched it turned into something that you could, you know, make a go, go of it with? Sure. Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, I journaled, um, which I don't think of at all as the same as like story writing or anything like that, but I journaled really voraciously, um, from a very young age. I actually still have all those journals and they take up an inordinate amount of space (laughs) in my house. But yeah, I mean, that's how I started writing. I really didn't start writing stories, but just more like a chronicle of my life and uh, continued that 
with a daily practice into college. And I was like blogging and doing a lot of creative nonfiction writing. I, and it really wasn't until a roommate of mine in college actually was like, Oh, well, like you should be a writer. Like you could have a column like Carrie Bradshaw. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Oh, that would be perfect. That's totally what I want to do. I can't believe I hadn't identified it until now. And then I started taking fiction writing workshops and, and it grew from there. So I guess that's the long answer. And the short one is that I, I came to it, I guess, kind of late, but I was doing it the entire time that I was in the process of coming to it. If that yeah. makes sense. Oh yeah. Yeah. My journaling practice started when I was 16 and it was called the Omera Chronicles it, <laughs> to this day, which is still what I call my, my journals. And I just, I've, kept it up ever since so going on you know 23 years or whatever it is so when, when did you start journaling at what age I think 12 11 12 nice in that area yeah <laughs> yeah and you made it a daily practice even even from that age yeah yeah I did um there's a lot of weird stuff in those journals I mean there's a <laughs> lot of like crushes <laughs> of course but yeah, I mean, to me, that's still serious writing. So give yeah. my young self props. <laughs> right. And what what form did the blogging take when you were in college? Um, it was similar. It was a lot of sort of processing whatever it was that was going on for me and sort of like new agey spirituality talk and um, – maybe weaving it in with stuff about like fashion or what I had been reading at the time, that kind of thing. It was like sort of pseudo lyrical essay, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really know that term or anything about it yet. I was just, um, braiding, I guess, before, before I I even knew what that was. Yeah. How did you start to carve out your own voice there? Or maybe who were you imitating at the time as you were looking to forge your own identity uh, on the page? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, my, I honestly, my voice feels very natural to me on the page. I think probably because I did journal for so long. Um, I had this just innate sense of my inner self. And honestly, like on a personal level, I feel like that has always been what has saved me is just that inner, that very solid inner voice. But I, when I was in high school, I started reading a lot of memoir. Um, Mary Carr was extremely influential to me, and she has such a solid voice, as, as I'm sure listeners know, Yeah. Um, which might have been just sort of the permission I needed to inhabit my own. Um, and I also really loved Annie Dillard, specifically in American Childhood, that book I've, I've read so many times, and I think it was sort of a similar guide in terms of voice in a way she writes. So with such detail about small, ordinary moments. And I, I I think that, you know, so often for young writers, especially there's this push to say something like big and new and exciting. And for me, that was permission to talk about the things that I could speak authentically about, which were those smaller moments. And did you grow up as an only child? 
Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, I, I, I figured. I, I know there's no reference to a sibling in, in Jello Girls, but I just I um, wanted to make sure, and I wonder if maybe that's kind of where that 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 core and or um, that confidence in your inner self comes from, because you probably spent a lot of time just kind of reflecting, maybe in your own sort of uh, dream world in a lot of ways, just. Uh, by virtue of being an only child and when your parents of course split up so like what was did that internality kind of force you <laughs> force you down this kind of writerly road you think probably yeah that's a good insight um yes that and also the fact that my mother was an artist and um there was just a lot of encouragement for which i remain so internally grateful um there was just a lot of encouragement for me to use my voice and um, at least from her and also to, to take art seriously, which, you know, I think a lot of people don't have the privilege of, of getting that message. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point. You're underscoring is that uh, some people, they might, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like they might kind of uh, they have that imposter syndrome, so to speak. So they're they're afraid to take their work seriously or take themselves seriously as a writer or a painter, podcaster, you name it. <laughs> uh, so, and so I wonder if maybe that early permission and allowing you know your your mother especially allowing you to take your work seriously allowed gave you more of that sort of uh, initiative and permission to actually take yourself seriously and identify as a writer and, and thus pursue it. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. I still have imposter syndrome, <laughs> <laughs> right. um, but maybe it's been mitigated by that permission. I, I like to, that's a nice way to think about it. Yeah. Um, it was never, it never sort of crossed my mind when I was like, ah, oh, I'm a writer. I mean, I didn't call myself a writer and I do now. But when that sort of first crossed my mind, it didn't, I never took a pause and thought like, oh, well, maybe I can't do this or maybe this isn't a legitimate career. I think I just knew that it was. Mm. I remember, well, so I kind of came up in, in newspapers and even when churning out stories, I never really considered myself a writer, even though I did it routinely. Um, and it wasn't until I had an essay published in an online literary journal, you know, when was this have been maybe 2007 or so that that felt like writing. Um, so at what point did you feel like you could comfortably identify yourself as, as a writer? I think probably once I began, once I got into a PhD program, and people, somebody wanted to, to pay me <laughs> mm -hmm. to uh, better myself writing-wise and um, to teach writing to other people and maybe even sort of further into that program when, like, I got more financial reward for it. I think, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> as trite as that sounds, it made me feel like, oh, I have a, a legitimate future in this. Like, I... I can make a quote-unquote living off of my work. So I'm going to call myself a writer now. <laughs> yeah. 
And and how did you how do you process that the, the imposter syndrome that uh, that we just referenced that you still feel even with a wonderful and brilliant memoir like this and the reviews and essays you've you've written and of course all the the wonderful teaching you know that I'll do where wherever you cross paths with your students like why do you still feel like you wrestle with that? That's going to be a multi pronged answer, I think. First of all. <laughs> I haven't met anybody who doesn't. And I think I'm not sure if it has to do with um, admiring other people's work and, and comparing oneself, which is truly the death of creativity. Um, That's a big theme on this show, by the way, the, yeah. com that talking to people about the comparison Olympics and everything. But, but yes, please carry on. We'll expand oh. on that. Yeah, I mean, fueled by social media, of course. So, you know, I, I haven't met, especially, I mean, this is such a, a discussed and um, almost secretive topic amongst debut authors is just the, the internal torture <laughs> that, um, that many people feel, not just in terms of being an imposter, but also of this thing happening that um, we've wanted and worked for and then it's sort of feeling like nothing's changed <laughs> but I'm sort of steering off from the question I think for me personally the imposter syndrome sort of comes from being an extreme perfectionist and from driving myself so hard um that it's never good enough. It's hard to take those moments to pause and appreciate um, and see that it actually is good enough <laughs> mm -hmm. because there's a mechanism inside of me that just sort of defaults to it not being good enough mm. um, and to me not being good enough. So, I mean, that's my life work probably is just taking a minute before I like launch into self-flagellation. <laughs> <laughs> And the I like I said a moment ago the the comparison's a big theme on the show comparison and and jealousy I love diving into that uh, it's something not a lot of people talk about it's something that festers inside me and it's a reason I started this podcast several years ago to kind of actually work through it to to celebrate uh, to celebrate other writers and creators and and channel that that bile into something that's a that, that does a bit more good and i'm i still i still wrestle with it but it, it's definitely better and i i wonder like if you catch yourself in those comparison olympics and those feelings of envy and jealousy I want, like how do you go about processing that energy and trying to channel it into something productive for yourself or maybe you know, the, your community and people in orbit around you First of all, that's so evolved of you. <laughs> like, kudos to you. Oh, thanks, um, thanks Allie. <laughs> I, there's, again, two answers to this question. Firstly, I, um, I work. <laughs> I work really, really hard. To, and by that, I mean, like, I write. So when I start to feel lesser than or jealous, I just throw myself back into the work. And I think like part of that comes from the fact that like the jealousy for me comes from seeing other people 
having like that second book deal or like, you know, whatever, um, bestseller stat, like whatever it is that I think that I need, um, in order to be okay in the world, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, when I see that, I guess I just turn back to whatever my project is and start like working even harder to try to catch up. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily productive or healthy. I think that that oftentimes like drives myself and my spouse crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it is how I cope and how I have coped in the past year or so. But then also I think like probably the healthier route and the certainly the more, um, I guess the healthier route is, is teaching and giving back sort of takes one out of that solipsistic jealousy spiral. And, um, <laughs> yeah, sort of like the reason that you started the podcast. Yeah. That's, and, uh, often when I've had, um, Glenn Stout on the show, he's a, you know, great editor and author, uh, series editor for the best American sports writing and so forth. And I think the very first time he was on the show, this was a couple years ago, he talked, he said like, nothing about this game makes any sense. And he's like, basically all you can really control is your effort. And that is all. And it sounds like that's what, that's what you do. You know, you put your effort in the controllables, which is the degree to which you're willing to wake up early and, and just grind on, on a draft or whatever you're working on. So that's, it sounds like you, you channel it, you put, you get yourself on the treadmill, so to speak, you know, if they're running, if they're running faster, well, I got to train harder, so to speak. Absolutely. That is totally my MO. And I mean, it's, it's, an oft repeated adage for writers is just like talent's not enough. Um, there's a lot of talented writers out there. It's, you have to have like talent, you have to have luck and then you have to have drive. And, um, I don't know. I just feel like, well, I can have drive. <laughs> mm -hmm. What does hard work and rigor look like to you? How do you define it? And how do you know that at the end of a, of a day of being at the computer that you can look back on it and be like, that was, that was a good hard work day that I can feel good about. Um, I mean, it's hard to control for sort of the emotional ups and downs of the writing process, you know, cause it's like, I can, um, right now, I am lucky enough to be able to many days sit down and work for four, five, six hours at a time. That's a lot. Like six is like a lot for uh, me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot for <laughs> um, anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, if I can clock in at four on average, that's like a good day for me. But just because I've put four hours down, doesn't mean that I'm going to get up and say like, that was a good day. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. I get up and I'm like, this is garbage, like, or there's so much more to do. And some days I'm like, this is genius. It's going to change the world. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I guess a good day would be like a day that I get like four or five hours in and I'm like peaceful about it and not like on either a high or a low. So let's unpack those. Let's say that four hours, a bit. Uh, when does that typically start for you? Um, 
yeah, let's just start with that, and we'll kind of get a little granular on it. But so, yeah, well, how do you how do you warm up the engine and and warm up to that initial start for four hours? Um, it's kind of a circuitous path. I um, I have a, a co working space that I work at, and my husband's a writer as well, and he works there as well. That that space is called the Hatchery. It's in Larchmont Village in Los Angeles, and it's for writers only, which is awesome because everybody sort of gets it. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you meet a lot of really interesting people. Um, so for me, the day begins, I get up and I normally go, um, straight to the teapot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I get my tea and I go to my computer and I maybe work at home, um, for an hour straight away, just looking over what I did the day before and sort of re-entering the world of the project and then after that hour or so um we sort of get ready and then we go to the hatchery john and i my husband and i normally drive together and, and we go to the hatchery and then it's some like ritual tea making <laughs> mm-hmm. some hard-boiled egg eating and then it's like butts in the chair uh, for the next four hours or so. And then the day is, that's pretty much it for, um, the writing day. What's your stamina like for sheer writing? Are you in that? Can you put your butt in the chair for hours at a time? Or is it like half hour on, get up for a walk, go up for a walk? Like, what is that? What does that look like for you? It's like butt in the chair. Um, this was not definitely not always the case for me. I, I don't know what happened. I think part of it comes with age. Um, for, in my experience, when I was, I'm 33, when I was, um, 23, it was like, my attention span was like, nada, which is why, (laughs) (laughs) um, a lot of my work at the time was fragmented and, written in pieces and like fragmented on the page as well with a lot of white space is just because I would write in short bursts and, and move on from there. It was just really hard for me to sit still, but now that's really different. I mean, it depends, obviously not every day is like this, but recently I tried, um, I tried Adderall and Mm -hmm. I thought this is, Actually, I didn't like it, but it was also just like, this is actually not that different from how I normally feel about what I'm working on, which is just like very focused. Once I enter the world, I'm kind of obsessed with whatever it is I'm working on within that world and also just obsessed with being in that world. I remember in in college... Uh, taking some of my friends, uh, was it Adderall or Dexedrine? It was one of those. And uh, I remember just studying for a physics exam, and I put my head down, and I, like, lifted it up, and it was eight hours later. I was like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, It was similar to that for me, although, like, I wasn't working on editing. Like, I feel like if you're doing something sort of um, – I mean, maybe numerical, but also just sort of routine. That's what it's good for. But I was like trying to make sentences and I, it was like, 
I think it felt like I was spending 30 seconds, but I was actually spending like 45 minutes on sentences, which is not normal for me. So it was like, wow, this is having the wrong effect here. Yeah. It's like you're, you're sewing or stitching and you're like stopping after every single stitch and like, right. And just going stitch, stitch yeah. like this, this is unsustainable. It's funny you speak. You spoke about how um, you know, the writing was kind of like in these kind of quick, quick bursts. In um, and I, you, you know, your essay uh, "Cut the Bones" and even in Jello Girls, are you have these uh, it on almost like a slideshow, these little you know blocks, uh, chunklets throughout mm-hmm. the throughout the whole thing. And uh, uh, what about that? Uh, strategy for writing the strategy might be the wrong word but you know, what about that style of writing say that essay which is like really short in terms of those sections and also the book um you know what about that appeal to you just from a storytelling uh tactic or tool oh that's such a good question um well cut the bones uh was my this is just sort of um cut the bones was my MFA thesis and it was 88 pages long (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um I ended up cutting it down to like I don't know how whatever 10 pages of fragments um so it's just sort of a funny anecdote about writing itself um Mm -hmm. that happens to me a lot um but I think that especially when I started Cut the Bones um at CalArts I was really interested in techniques to render trauma and to perform traumatic experience and traumatic memory. And, you know, I think so much of memory itself is fragmented and does come to us in those um, bursts of image that sort of cut away and then cut to something else. Um, And then specifically with trauma, it it's so disjointing on an emotional level and on a memory level that it feels to me like really in some cases, the only way to render it effectively is in fragments Mm. or with fragmented language. In in some of my research, I read that, um, you know, this is specifically, I think it was dealing with um, how you, uh, coach along classes or or workshops and um and and how you want people and something that really disappoints you is like say you were put submitting your work and then the teacher or the professor wasn't prepared and you're like you know preparation is is really key going in to try to improve everybody's work and uh I wonder what it does your preparation look like when you're really breaking down a, a piece to try to elevate it be it your own or, or somebody else's? Like, what does that degree of preparation look like for you? Um, I write really long, my students probably know this, <laughs> really long critique letters. And I think, um, I mean, that's the side, like, obviously, point by point, it's like, I read the work and then I read it a second time and I make notes in the margins. And then like, for me, that all comes together in, um, the crit letter, which is honestly for me, one of the most, like, just to be selfish about it, 
is one of the most effective teaching tools um, for other, for, you know, the writers that I coach, but also for myself, because it's like, this is a space in which we now process and really clarify for ourselves and for the other writer what we feel the piece is doing well and where we were very much, you know, along with it and, and in the world um, and where and why we were thrown out of the world. Um, for me, and this is just part of who I am and, and who I am as a writer, but like I make sense of things through writing. So um, being able to, you know, really like wallow in the critique letter and, and give myself time for that is I think the best mode of preparation for me. And also you uh, speak about, you know, praising, praising strengths and using those as uh, <laughs> this is my own wording, but like kind of like, uh, you know, swimmies on someone's arm to keep them afloat in the pool of despair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the, you, you said that there, there's value, almost more value in really praising the strengths in a sense to really lift up. You know, if that's what if there's something you identify as good, lean into that and that'll just make the rest, you know, cream rise to the top. And so I wonder for you, like, what do you identify as something that you're particularly strong at that you really that you try to maybe double down on? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, first of all, I want to say, like, <laughs> we have to praise each other's strengths and it makes practical sense because if you know what you're doing right, then you can do more of that. It's like dwelling on what's wrong. That's harder to fix, but dwelling on what's right. It's like, okay, well in redrafting, like I'll just do more of what the people like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So for me, I think my strength is, um, emotional intelligence and um, being able to say with clarity um, or sort of, yeah, say with clarity the, the, the emotional elements of the work on the page without um, telling necessarily the reader, but also you know, sort of pointing it out in a way that that is um, indicative of the fact that I know uh, the emotions of my characters or, or whatever I'm writing about the emotional core of that. Um, that's something that I come to and know very quickly. Um, I think that's my strength. I think, you know, craft wise, I'm fairly good at making sentences and, and lyricism, but I don't see that as, you know, particularly unique. <laughs> um, and that's something that like, I see in my students a lot is just sort of leaning on poetry and, and the ability to make beautiful work, but not doing the sort of deeper emotional work to make the piece um, special, I guess. And um, it's just, it's a learned skill. And, and likewise on the opposite opposite end of that is like of course you don't want to dwell too much on on weaknesses but at some point it, it probably does behoove anybody whatever their craft is to level up some of those weaknesses to your strengths and uh, what might you identify as something that you struggle with that uh that you don't want to ignore but and you want to pull 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 that up to the level where you feel confident as you are with the say the emotional intelligence on the page 
oh my gosh, structure, <laughs> plot, <laughs> conflict, <laughs> all of like the nuts and bolts that like other people seem to have learned at some point. I just like, I read, honestly, I read a ton of craft books at this point. Like I mentioned, my husband's a writer. He does as well. And I think like, uh, they're so essential, like stuff that like I recommend to my students and they're like, basically like, that's for babies, you know, but, um, I need it, man. Like I need to see like a template for how to make a story arc. Um, if left to my own devices, I will just basically write for pages and pages about like feelings. (laughs) Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely my, my weakness is structure. And, and for a book like Jello Girls, that came dead last for me. Um, the Jello Girls was for years much sort of dreamier and more meditative and slippery with time than it ended up being. And I, I've said this before elsewhere, but um, as much as I... I liked that style. It wasn't giving me the um, scaffolding to address everything in the book that I wanted to address. And it was only once I took everything I had and just put a very conventional, straightforward structure onto it and, and made it conform to that, that I was able to reach in other ways. And I mean, that, that was such a lesson for me. And it's something that I harp on a lot with my students is just that there needs to be a grounding force, be it structurally or in terms of language, motif, something that in, pins the reader down and then allows them to go with you when you want to stretch out elsewhere. Have you started to, I mean, let's, let's talk about that too, in terms of Jello Girls, how long did it take you then to uh, kind of reverse engineer it into its current structure? Was that just a a structural and strategic nightmare for you to to unweave it and then reweave it? Um, uh, no, actually, (laughs) weirdly, (laughs) um, it wasn't. And I, but I think, so it happened very quickly. Like once I've got the memo, like once I figured it out and part of this, I think was helpful. Um, it was helpful to me to have a, a ghost book, like a template, like another book that I was looking at. And it was like, this is the structure that my book needs to take. I see now how this writer did it. I can just follow suit. Um, Maggie Nelson has a, a wonderful craft essay about doing just that. And I think once I realized that other writers do that, I was like, Oh my God, like that would have made this so much easier from the get go. Um, do you know the title of that essay? I, I don't, it's in a tin house craft book. Um, I send it out to my students a lot, but I forget the title. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'll, I'll dig it up and maybe try to find a way to link to it in the show notes. Cool. Um, I can email you the title. Um, But yeah, so, so once I sort of identified that it was probably two or three, two months maybe of, um, taking all the material I had and just sort of adhering it to this more 
um, sort of strict, I guess, narrative structure. So the, the structure really is just like we open at the end and then we go alternating chapters uh, forward through time. Until, like we go back in time and then alternating chapters forward through time until we reach where we began. Um, and it, it, it's, it's just much clearer than it was before. And I think there's more narrative tension for sure. Yeah. And, uh, it's great. Like my, an editor I work with, he, he says like, you know, the reader needs these little handholds or toeholds on the wall, so to speak, you know, you need to be able to hang on to something. And if you don't give them something to glom onto, whether that's just saying what year it is or something, mm-hmm. or, and how old are you here? Or how old is that person there? It's like the reader just needs something to something sticky and then it just proceeds such such it's such a better experience for the reader and that's that's what you're really going for in in the end absolutely and i think it's you know i think this is basically the same way set a thing set is a different way but you know i like to think of it as you're asking the reader to enter into this world with you Anything that takes them out of the world, even if it's only if it's like a weird sentence or an awkward word choice or um, something that makes them furrow their brow and think like, oh, that's not clear. What year is it? Anything that takes them out is no good and needs to be resolved because you want them to be in the world so fully that they can't stop turning pages and they read the entire book in one sitting. I mean, that's ideal. Um, So anything that's distracting or makes them confused, even if it sacrifices some of the beauty of the sentence, like it's got to happen. Yeah, that's and that's a really good point because then ultimately what you want it's almost like if you're in a concert and then you're you're getting like you're really into the music and then you know the drummer is offbeat or the guitarist like buzzes the fretboard. It's like oh you're just taken out of it right away. And, and instead it's just like, all right, sim- simplify these things. And that way we can just immerse ourselves in the experience. Totally. And sometimes that means that like the guitar player does not get to have their solo and like show off because it would ultimately be discordant. Um, so, you know, I encounter that, I think a lot, I mean, everybody does with their own work and with student work, but sometimes like, you know, it's cliche, but like we do have to, to kill our darlings and like cut things that we're really enamored with linguistically um, in the service of the story. And when you were, let's just say when you were writing Jello girls and getting right into, into the thick and middle of it, you know, I, I like to call this part kind of the, the ugly middle of drafts where you're too far away from the shore to turn away and turn home. And you're, <laughs> and your only option is to just keep swimming ahead. And it's so, how do you grind and get through that that middle part uh, when, like you said, you're you're past the honeymoon stage and you just got to keep going? Ugh. Well, this isn't like the most attractive answer, but honestly, <laughs> I um, I'm very like goal oriented and achievement oriented. Um. So I, I want the accomplishment of having finished the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want the accomplishment of having the book be good and having people read it and enjoy it. Um, and that, you know, it, like, it didn't drive me so much 
in the middle of Jello Girls because I was writing it in the middle of a PhD program and I had a million students and a lot of other stuff to grapple with. Um, but once my mom died, which happened sort of in the ugly middle of Jello Girls, there was a serious fire under my butt. I think to just avoid the just intolerable feeling of having lost her, but also to, you know, finish the book because she had wanted to write this book and, and to finish the book. Um, and then, you know, in subsequent projects, my subsequent project, it's the like horrible jealousy that we talked about. Um, and just the desire to have a second book and have it be good and, and not be a one book wonder and be taken seriously and all those like annoying, ugly voices that, that are inside many of us. Um, that's what's driving me. <laughs> yeah. And how, when, when your mother passed away, like, did it make the writing of this book harder or did it, did it free you in a sense? I think it freed me. Um, a lot of it had already, a lot of the sort of early material of the book had already been written. But I think it, I think it freed me. I don't exactly know how though. It's an interesting question. Yeah. I wonder, um, yeah, just, uh, cause in a sense it's like, you know, it's, her her passing and then you have to then continue to live with the material in a sense could have been stifling and just almost irredeemably mm. painful to pursue the project or in the in your case it seemed like it it actually motivated you to 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 push through in some way um yeah, it, yeah. it's it's tough it's got it must have been a really really you know just emotional grind for you to 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 finish it, to push through i think um I'm sure that it's sort of hard to remember probably cause I was in the like crazy stage of <laughs> grieving. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I, I felt like I was visiting her when I would sit down. And I think that that book still is that for me. Um, I don't look at it very much, but it, I don't even read from it much, but, um, it does. It feels like she lives there. Um, so for me, early on, it was like, well, at least I still have this part of her. And then when the book came out, it was like, oh, now, now she belongs to the world, and they get to have their own reactions to her, and I have to allow that, and also like. <laughs> Never go on Amazon or Goodreads <laughs> because it's extremely personal. Um, and I think it probably always is. But, uh, yeah, I think, like, publishing the book was, like, letting go uh, in a way that I was ready for. But, yeah, that's a rambling answer. But, yeah. Oh, no, that was, that was well, <laughs> no, really well put. And uh, when I spoke with Meredith May, who wrote this brilliant memoir, The Honey Bus, um, about a you know a girl saved by bees, you know growing up her and it's basically about a grandfather and um she uh he he 
you know, similarly, he, he passed away a few years ago and, uh, and she, when she was talking about him, the way he is in this book and her book being, you know, translated into different languages and whatever, she's like, I can't believe like my, you know, my grandpa, he gets to, he gets to live forever in this book and he's being experienced all over the world. And it's like, it, it is like this little embodiment of her grandfather that, you know, he will in an essence never die because he's in this thing. And, mm-hmm. and I would get the way you put it with your mother, like she's in this book. And so she's, she is there forever. Yeah. She would love that. I'm sure, um, <laughs> most people would, but yeah, I mean, it, it is, there's a lot of pleasure that I take in, in sharing her that way. Cause she was, she was complicated, but she was awesome. Um, so, you know, it's nice to see other people like loving and experiencing her as well. And, and early on, I would say in the first third of the book, there's a lot of material there that I that is would be hard for, you know, to to write as like an objective reporter writing and reporting and write and, and writing a lot of very, you know, graphic material and painful material. And and this happened to be occurring to, you know, your your grandmother, who, of course, you, you never met because um, she passed away when your mother was 14. And, of course, writing about stuff, uh, you know, uncles and your mom and, and your dad. Like, how hard was it for you to, to write about that in, a, in an honest and truthful way when you're so close to those people? Um, it, it wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, well, the stuff with my parents... I and actually all of the material in Jello Girls was so much a part of um, my understanding of my mother's life and who she was and, and my sense of self, I guess, in a way. And I think that's because she was working on her memoir um, for most of my life and was very. Uh, forthcoming about the material in it, probably too much. Um, but so it, to me, it was just like, oh yes, like this is the story. This is what happened. And like, it's my job to write it and to take from my experience um, and my, you know, my ability to empathize with my mom and, and grandmother and to use that to, um, write the material compellingly the stuff with my parents um I think as soon as I started writing seriously like as soon as I took that first undergraduate fiction writing workshop I was writing about it um so I had a lot of practice and it was it was definitely the story the story of their marriage and and its disillusion and its effect on me was like the story that I wanted to write until I had gotten it all the way out. Um, so I had a lot of practice with that one. Mm. Yeah, and, and of course the the book's kind of central central theme, if you will, is about real toxic patriarchy and and trying to put specifically, you know, you know women in a mold. And it's just so sort of be- beautifully illustrated by through through the the Jello the just what Jello st- stands for stood for and um and could could you have imagined that you know so much of the the a lot of these uh, the this patriarchal stuff is finally having its feet to the fire in so many ways with 
you know, the Louis C.K.'s or uh, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, mm-hmm. and everything. Uh, when you were writing this, those things were starting to come to light. Uh, could you have imagined that you were writing something that was really illustrative of 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 that uh, coming and <laughs> coming out of the shadows, like as you were writing this book? Um, I mean, sure, just because. I mean, I couldn't predict, um, you know, the cultural moment we were about to enter. But as a woman, it's like, (laughs) I think a lot of us felt like, yeah, like, (laughs) it's not a surprise. Like, this is (laughs) been dealing with this forever. Right. This is like my lived experience and like that I was I was writing about it um, and that it just happened to to have a a moment. which for which I'm really thankful. Um, I couldn't have predicted it. No, but it it wasn't a surprise, I guess. Um, it was, I think for many people, a relief. Um, and also a moment of attempted healing, healing, um, complicated emotions over it, you know, places where it failed. Um, I, you know, I, I see Jello girls as like a perfectly timed book and not by my own intention, but I, I don't see it, um, brought up in conversation with the Me Too movement a lot. And that has kind of honestly been a disappointment, like just because I think it's so, it's all right there. Um, and it, it just seems like an opportunity lost, but, um, I mean, I know I couldn't have predicted it. <laughs> yeah, it just that. Let's see. Like as you were as you were, you know, writing and you're you're, you're developing over as a writer in the last you know few years. Uh, what would you say you know that you're better at today than you were five years ago? Um, everything. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely everything. Um, structure. Uh, much better at that um, conflict and sort of an idea of what I want to read and what the kind of work that I then want to write and be in conversation with. And yeah, you mentioned um, Dillard's American Childhood earlier as a book you reread. Um, what are some other books that you constantly find yourself going back to to remind yourself how it's done? Sort of like a, a, a mentor in book form, if you will. Oh my gosh, so many. Um, I feel like just one among many and like a cohort of women writers my age, but Veronica um, by Mary Gateskill is, my copy is like just, destroyed (laughs) because I've read it so many times and just it's the kind of book that I can open it and um go to any page and just like take a minute with it and and get something out of it Dara's The Lover uh another book where the cover has come completely off because I've read it so many times um I've written about this recently but my um mother's copy of Adrian Rich's uh, Dream of a Common Language is like basically my most prized possession. Um, Her notes are in the margins. So it's like, I mean, that it's just precious to me. Um, 
and I, I can again open the, the pay any page and uh, hear both Rich's voice but also my mother's so it feels like my two angels <laughs> speaking to me um, and then I'm, I love Maggie Nelson Bluettes is one of my favorites um, I'm sort of looking at my bookshelf right now Joan Didion I could go on yeah yeah, there are so many. Uh, it's it's great that you're listening just uh, just a a cohort of just brilliant, uh, just such brilliant writers, and that you can just go to them all the time. You don't need to get if you even if you could have Didion on the phone. It's just like, well, you know what? The work is the work is gonna speak to me louder than maybe she could, and like it's just so great that you can turn to that in a, in a moment of despair, which, as we all know, happens on on almost daily basis. Mm-hmm. Actually, also sometimes this is like, oh, I have no secrets. Um, (laughs) I like if I'm feeling really uh, just sapped of confidence, I will like repeat to myself in my head, I am Rachel Kushner. I am Rachel Kushner. (laughs) Um, As I make sentences or like, you know, approach a reading that I'm nervous about or something like that, because she just always seems um, just personally so chill and confident and I um I love her novels and I just love love her identity as a writer so much so I'm just like oh if I can just like inhabit that degree of of chill genius um just you know shine it on for a while like I'll make it through this reading okay (laughs) I kind of do that too if I'm reporting on a story and or preparing for a podcast and I'm interviewing someone who's a hero or just a titan and I get and I get a little freaked out. It's just like I kind of look to other people just like you and I kind of like, how would they handle this? They can handle it. I can handle it then too. And I and just kind of have a, you know, what would fill in the blank do? And then that kind of that kind of helps me. So it's kinda of, it's great to kind of hear you echo the same sentiment. Yeah. I it's I feel like a lot of people must do that, but it's sort of this like shameful secret. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And what we want to pull the curtain back on that here. That it's it's the way that people don't feel as lonely and don't feel like a freak any more than they already are. <laughs> Seriously, and I mean that to me is like what literature is there for too. I like. I don't know. I like. I feel like the page is the place where I feel like I can put every shameful thought, secret, like the darkest parts of myself go into my writing and onto the page, which is crazy because, you know, ideally it goes out into the world and then everybody reads it. Um, And that's definitely not something that I would do, you know, one-on-one face-to-face with someone, but it's like the page is my safe space and um, I mean, I think literature is a safe space for so many of us. It's where we go to to feel like less of a freak, as you say. <laughs> and uh, where would you say you feel the most alive and engaged in in the process? I think I feel the most alive and gay and engaged somewhere around the second draft of a full manuscript or essay or whatever where it's like all of the writing has been done for the most part 
And now I know what the book is. And I'm excited about the fact that like all of these themes are coming to the um, forefront and they aren't necessarily the themes that I like carefully, like um, just scattered throughout. They're other more like interesting and deep and um, complicated thematics that I'm now realizing I have inside of me and I'm not like a total dummy and that um, this book, you know, or this, this piece of writing is going to like speak on a couple different levels. That's the exciting part. Mm. And it's a bummer when that doesn't happen, but sometimes it doesn't happen. <laughs> but when it does, it's like, okay, that's, that's the good part. Cause then you get to go back and like massage and shape, um, you know, what you see the book as becoming. That's the fun part. I don't love like making pages <laughs> that is like drudgery to me. Um, it's exciting sometimes, but a lot of the time it's, it's so much work and you see all the work stretching ahead of you. But once it's like done and there's a, an object that then can then be shaped, that's the best part. Mm. I think that's a wonderful place to end what I hope is the first of many of these conversations down the road, Allie. Um, uh, where can uh, people find you online and get more familiar with your work if they're not already familiar with it? Sure. Um, my website's just my name, uh, .com. Um, and that's it. I mean, you can find me on social media. I hate Twitter. I really hate Twitter. So <laughs> just be forewarned. Um, not your, not a, not a <laughs> playground you, you hang out in. Oh, it makes me feel horrible. Um, I hate it so much. So just know that world. I hate Twitter. Um, but you can find me there. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Jello Girls is available. Ask your independent bookstore for it. It comes out in paperback on the 9th of July. So um, oh, wow. that, that makes that's... it nice and light and affordable. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, the book's been out about a year. It's an amazing book. I, I can't recommend it enough. So it's, uh, it's great to get to talk to you about your writing and, of course, about, about the book. Um, and, uh, Allie, thanks so much for doing this. Let's, uh, let's promise to do this again when, when something else comes out of yours. Can't wait. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Okay, that was great, right? I think so. But am I going to say anything else? Am I going to say anything different? If I didn't think it was great, I probably just wouldn't say anything. But that's not true. It's all great. It's all great. Allie was right up there, if you ask me, with like Leslie Jameson, Maggie Nelson, etc. You're, you're going to want to buy stock in Robottom. Just buy now. She's, a, she's, a, she's already on the rocket ship, but you might be able to, you might be able to grab on. Thanks to Goucher's MFA in Nonfiction in Bay Paths University MFA program in Creative Nonfiction for the support. I don't know why I'm butchering the the ad support today. I'm just I don't know because I got to go see some fireworks or something. Keep the conversation going on Twitter by tagging the show at CNF Pod and me at Brendan O'Mara. We'll get the band together and play some covers. It's just what we're gonna do. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. Head over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the monthly newsletter. First of the month. That's when it goes out. You missed this one. You missed July's. But sign up now. You'll get August and beyond. And uh, if you unsubscribe, I take it really personally. Okay, now what? I think that's it. 
I think so. So remember, if you can do interview, see ya.